What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian goes on the record about social media platforms, activism, and the Internet's role in democracy. There is a legitimacy that comes with seeing a hate group or conspiracy theory in a feed right alongside you know, your uncle celebrating his promotion. We need to understand what role we want these systems to play. 2020 has been hard on all of us, but Ohanian says because of it all, it's been an inspiring time for venture capital. As painful as this year has been, I can't help but feel like the companies that are getting founded right now are going to be more purposeful, more intentional, and have a bigger impact than any of the ones that I've seen. But for established business owners like restaurateur Cameron Mitchell, the pandemic outlook is less optimistic. Restaurants can actually lose more money than they could being shut down at 25% sales. I know for a fact we, uh, we're starting to lose money now. Those stories, plus Elon Musk is getting tested a lot, and wealthy Americans are expecting a leg up in the race for a coronavirus vaccine. To them, to the wealthy right now, there is nothing more important to spend your money on than trying to get this vaccine. It's Friday. It is Friday the 13th. This is the second Friday the 13th of 2020. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you want to check out... First up on today's podcast, COVID's surge. The United States set another grim record for coronavirus infections with 159,000 in a single day. That's the ninth day in a row with at least 100,000 cases. One in every 360 Americans tested positive for COVID in the last week alone, according to data from the COVID tracking project. A couple of other pandemic headlines. California became the second state to top a million COVID cases a week after Texas hit that milestone. And Kentucky Supreme Court has upheld the governor's statewide mask mandate and capacity limits on restaurants. Uh, The Republican state attorney general had accused the Democratic governor of exceeding his authority. And the Ivy League has called off winter sports uh, for the year, uh, including basketball and hockey. We've got a lot of problems in the world, but you got to feel for the athletes that, that, you know, spend so much time trying to, you know, hone their skills. And it's, it's just tough. Very, very tough. Becky. Think about the Olympians. Think about the Olympians around the world yeah. that are hoping that their games Kids will be put in back on, too. Kids in grade school and high school that, that, you know, look forward to that, you know, after school every day. Well, there is no school. A lot of places there is no school anyway. So. In the meantime, Elon Musk making news with a tweet overnight. He said... Something extremely bogus is going on. Was tested for COVID four times today. Two tests came back negative. Two came back positive. Same machine, same test, same nurse. Rapid antigen test from BD. CNBC reached out to Becton Dickinson to clarify if Musk was referring to their rapid antigen test and have yet to receive a response outside of normal business hours. 
Musk later tweeted that he had symptoms of a typical cold and that he was getting PCR tests from separate labs with results coming in about 24 hours. But guys, this is the complaint with that rapid antigen test that it's not spot on. And I think it's particularly difficult if you are early on in an infection with this. Um, what I was hearing from a nurse last week is that you have got to get that longer PCR test if you are uh, either asymptomatic or very, very early on in some of these things. Yeah. How's this one work? This is not, you know, they don't have to take it from your frontal lobes. This was, is easier than that. I don't know. This is that rapid one that, that comes back yeah. in like 15 Saliva, minutes. Saliva, probably. That, that one, I think, is... I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if the Beckton Dickinson is alive. I think it's in. The, I think it's the no. I think it's up the nose, but not all the way up but, up to uh, your brain, up the nose. It's right. one of those. Right. It's one of the to, to the circle lower in the nose is what I think. But I, I'll I'll do a little yeah. homework on that one. Two and two, he said. Uh, me time, uh, Musk. Two two positive. I don't know how to yeah, do, I don't know how to read out what's more likely. Do you guys? I mean, if if you get a positive, it seems like that's indicating something. The negatives would seem like they'd be false negatives. I mean, I'd be w more be worried about the, the positives because it, it seems like you know if there's a if it tests at all a, a positive for the antigen, you would think maybe it's seeing something, and the other ones missed it. Or I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know what's more that's likely: false no, no, negative or false positive. For what it's worth, we had a, we had a friend who went through this exact experience. They tested positive. Then they tested negative, then they tested positive, and then they tested negative, and then two other negative times, and it was clear that there had been a mess with the way the test had been done. But what it does, and this is the real great complication from an economic standpoint, is uh, she ended up having to call about a million people who were in her circle, if you will, to tell, her, tell them. They all then were quarantining, waiting for, but this went on for days and days and days. So um, she had a million people in her circle, that's of. a problem. Concierge Medicine is a very big business, and it's gotten even bigger during the pandemic. Now some customers have a new request for their doctors, and you probably know what it is. Robert Frank joins us with more on that. Robert. Hey, Andrew. Good morning. Well, concierge doctors were among the first to get rapid testing this summer. Now they hope to be among the first to get, yes, you guessed it, the vaccine. Now, concierge medical companies, that's where you pay anywhere from $3,000 to $20,000 a year for a private medical team and a lot of their services. They say business has more than doubled just during the pandemic as the wealthy seek that at-home care, the latest equipment, drug therapies. They were also among the first to get testing kits this spring and among the first to get rapid tests this summer amid a lot of controversy. Now, concierge doctors are getting flooded with calls from new and existing clients asking for early access to this vaccine. Now, the companies say they will follow all the rules of the CDC and the government, but they add they're working their connections with pharma companies, government agencies and advisors, distributors like McKesson, and a lot of the scientists that serve on their board and as advisors to see just how quickly they can get doses. Now, you know regulators are going to be watching this. The Medical Board of California investigated some concierge doctors back in March after reports that they were hoarding tests for healthy patients. So far on that case, there has been no finding of any wrongdoing. But guys, given the supply-demand imbalance of this vaccine in the coming months, you know that these wealthy patients are going to pay anything to get this vaccine. Back to you. Okay, but here's the question, Robert. As, as some of our viewers who maybe have concierge doctors may know, uh, all, most of the time, it's an all-inclusive price. So you pay $7,500, $10,000 for the year, and that's supposed to cover everything. Do you think that they're going to 
there's going to be a, an add-on incremental fee just for the vaccine, and what do you think they would charge for that? I don't necessarily think it's, it's the business opportunity of an add-on. It's just that these concierge doctors, if you look at what happened with pricing, they were able, because of the money that they have, to lock up some of these labs that test, that process tests, and they were able to get really quick results that a lot of most Americans couldn't get. So it's not so much there's an extra fee, it's that the, the wealth that these concierge doctors have and the money that they have from clients gives them access to people, to companies, to distributors uh, that maybe some other regular doctors don't get. Uh, so, so it's a very wealthy industry. They, they're, they're paying full for everything. They don't have to rely on insurance or wait for that. And I think that's the access that people worry about. You know, Robert, just going back to like a, a freshman year economics class, everybody remembers the supply-demand uh, dynamics and how it, if you don't let them play out, it can be a problem. And you just don't have to look any further than, than pulse pricing for Uber. You, you either, you know, you're either willing to pay up or you're not, you don't get the ride. It's, but this is different. This is fundamentally different because there's no free market that, that can be, I don't think, really considered here. And the supply, we know what it is. It's de minimis initially. So... It doesn't matter if you've got $50,000 to pay for a dose, but I'll bet you some people are able to do it, Robert. I'll bet you it does happen sometimes. Well, and, and that's the whole point of this report. I think it will happen. I guarantee that in the next three to six months, we will hear some reports of whether it's through concierge doctors or some other means that people with the most money and look to them, to the wealthy right now, there is nothing more important to spend your money on than trying to get this vaccine. So you know they're going to try, you know there's going to be a lot of money chasing it and there will be examples of where they're able to get it. Now how widespread that remains to be seen. But you're right, it's supply demand and those with the most money, whether it's healthcare or any other part of the economy, they get it first. Hey Robert, isn't it a complete kind of acknowledgement of that, just with the response that these concierge doctors gave you, the idea that we're going to follow the rules, but we're working all our contacts as hard as we possibly can. I mean, if, if, if they weren't going to well, try and skirt around the rules, they would just say, we're following the rules and there's nothing we can do to get around them. Yeah, no, that was surprising to me how honest they were about, as they see it, the value proposition that they are offering their clients. From their perspective, they're saying, look, we're charging you a lot more than your regular primary care physician. And what you're getting for that is, the, is all of our connections, whether it's the government agencies, to, to scientists, to researchers, to the pharma companies, to companies like McKesson that will be distributing this. And, and from their point of view, that is their value proposition. They're proud of it. And I was a little surprised they were so open with it uh, in talking to me. You know, Robert, and, and then you can take it even a step further. And you, you saw Dr. Zeke Emanuel, who I think is going to be uh, one of the um, President-elect Biden's advisors, but talking about a global distribution, not even favoring um, Americans. And then you get into a whole different discussion. And I understand it. I mean, that, that is like the ultimate nationalism to think that we make it, we get it here. Or it, it's almost sort of another example of the global inequality that, that I don't know how you fix it, but you can't deny that we're, you know, we think we're special, I guess, and we deserve the vaccines here because you got a lot of flack for saying, you know, from certain quarters for saying that it should be global. What would you do? No, I'm kidding. I, I'm not asking you for an answer. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Do you? No, but, but you're absolutely right in that this, this uh, whole epidemic and pandemic has magnified and amplified inequalities in so many ways in, in the economy in terms of who gets access to certain health care and treatments. 
And I think the vaccine will just serve to further amplify all of that. And, and I think the possibility that people in the U.S. get the vaccine from some source overseas also can't be ruled out. Robert, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about this, but we appreciate you being on the case because this is a huge issue that lots of people are concerned about. And today, as I said, I, I give you information that you don't really appreciate, you, you two, but did you know how many Friday the 13th there could be in a year? There can be one, two, or three. And I know there were we two, two be- so far? because the last one was my anniversary, and it was March 13th. Remember where we were March 13th? We were like clueless. Yep. We Still were about to leave. That was like our last day there. Next on Squawk Pod, Reddit co-founder and venture capitalist Alexis Ohanian on social media, 2020, and why he's more hopeful than ever. Because of all the, the, the trauma, the struggle uh, of this year in particular, I think we have a, a renewed faith among founders and entrepreneurs to really build something, to, to make a difference to build something to solve real problems. I've never actually been more motivated in a decade of investing than, than I have been in the last really six months. That interview plus a sweet treat. The product was delicious. I really uh, <laughs> led from the stomach, I guess, on this one. That's right after this. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Well, a lot has happened in the tech world since we saw our last guest. Top executives like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, and Alphabet's Sundar Pichai faced bipartisan criticism in Congress over how they handle online content. And social media became more of a political flashpoint than ever. Twitter flagging and hiding numerous questionable tweets from President Trump and the run-up to the election and since and conservatives lodging new complaints over perceived political bias. Joining us right now to talk about all of this and much more is Alexis Ohanian. He's the co-founder of Reddit. He's also the founder of the VC fund 776 and co-founder of Initialized Capital. And Alexis, it's been a while since we've talked to you. It's, it's good to see you this morning. Damn. Good to see you too, Becky. Did I miss much? Eh, just a little, <laughs> just a little. A lot happening here. Oh, Lord. A lot Hopefully going you on. can weigh in on some of this. Yeah. What do you want to start with? You want to start with big tech regulation. You want to start what's happening in social Um, media. What do you. Let's 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 get right into it. I think I think uh, gone are the days that social media platforms could could really lean into the word platform uh, and avoid the word media, which is very much in the name, um, given the amount of of scrutiny now we as a society are are putting on them. And I think we even saw this now with uh, the, the Biden Harris transition team talking about putting together a committee. Uh, to, to better understand the relationship between online harassment and abuse as well as radicalization. And I think that's, I think it's absolutely the right course. And I think it's, it, it, we need to have a much more intelligent conversation here with uh, the leaders of these companies um, as well as within society to decide how we want uh, to, to protect individuals uh, and also how we want these levers of power wielded because they, they have a, a very real influence. 
as the founder of one of these social media platforms, Reddit, mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing this is an evolution in your own thinking about all of this. Is that how you felt when you started yeah. Reddit or this is something you see the power? You know, uh, I mean, there's 2005. I am a, a 21-year-old first-time CEO and founder right out of college. And, and the idea that people would spend, you know, the time that they do sharing links, having discussions, uh, it w- was, a, was a, a dream. It was a fantasy. It was a, just a hope that we could create the kind of, of reach uh, that we have today. And so in a lot of ways, I think I and, and my peers were pretty naive about how this could end up and, and where this could go. Uh, and, and really had, I, I had evolved my thinking over a number of the last years. You know, I stepped away from day-to-day responsibilities at Reddit about three years ago, remained on the board, uh, and then obviously resigned, um, you know, in protest this June, uh, in the wake of George Floyd. And I, I was relieved and thrilled to see the company implement, uh, policies against, uh, hate communities on the platform. After my resignation, I was very happy to see them honor my request, um, to replace me with a, a black director. Um, but I really do think we, we've gotten to this place now 15 years later where uh, I think none of us had a full appreciation of what we were building and what impact it would have. And, uh, and we haven't led as much as we've needed to. We've, we've reacted far too often as an industry and it's time for leadership. I think it is very, very clear that, that we need this kind of leadership now more than ever. If you think we need this leadership now more than ever, why step aside? Why not use your influence on a, on a regular basis to say, these are the changes we're going to make? And, and I guess the question comes down to, what should some of these social media platforms actually be doing? They're going to get regulated, very likely. The regulators are coming. But what should they be doing? What's the right way to go about this? Are they publishers? Are they actual media companies where everything that's published on that platform they're responsible for? Well, um, I mean, there's a lot there. I, I think, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak about things in the past, but, but looking forward, I think whoever, I think it is always a, it is always a difficult conversation, even at a, a, a board level for one voice to have among others. Um, and sometimes it's that, sometimes that one voice isn't effective enough and isn't enough. Um, but I think what is clearly apparent is that when the broader public, advertisers, um, and just society at large are saying we want change, um, that has a real influence. And and look, the thing that the thing that is a, a guarantee now is that the genie doesn't go back in the bottle. And you're already seeing now, you know, as as platforms like Twitter take more aggressive stances towards labeling questionable information or misinformation, you're seeing new platforms emerge that are gonna become homes for these communities that feel disenfranchised on, on other platforms. This, the, the, the very nature of the internet makes it sort of immune uh, in this way and that there's gonna be this resiliency. But I do think we overall need to understand what role we want uh, these systems to play. And, and they are privately run companies, right? They, at the end of the day, I think it is a very smart business decision and we have the data to back it up that if you reduce the amount of hate speech and harassment on your platform, uh, you get more engagement. Like users actually want to spend more time in places where they don't feel attacked. Um, and, and so I think there's a clear business argument for it and there's a clear mandate for independent companies and private companies to you know, enforce policies they want to for the betterment of their platforms. 
Um, but I do think we're, we, we've, we've gotten way ahead of our skis in terms of the impact that it's had. And it's pretty undeniable now looking back. Uh, and so I do think, look, <sighs> government does tend to get pretty ham-fisted with solutions. Um, and I don't think this is a sledgehammer. I think this should be more like a scalpel. Um, but I do think the, the highest leverage thing we have is from us as, as voters, as consumers, um, we still have really the, the most leverage possible. And I think that's where we're going to see it continue to be, be best exercised. You, you talk about other platforms kind of popping up mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. people feel disenfranchised on places mm -hmm. like a Facebook or a Twitter. I, I guess mm -hmm. you're talking about Parler, which has seen such mm -hmm. a huge surge. For instance. Uh, but now that, yeah, for instance. But I mean, there could be, and it's almost the, the, the bigger issue at hand here is, you know, there is a kind of legitimacy that gets created with context. And so, you know, there is, and I think this is the part that's going to get, I think the receipts are going to get checked by a lot of people smarter than me as they sort of look over the, the paper trail. But the, there is a legitimacy that comes with seeing a, a hate group or conspiracy theory in a feed right alongside, you know, your uncle celebrating his promotion or uh, some cute photos of your nephew. Like there is... This context provides a real normalization, right? And, and that's the part where I think it plays a long-term role um, and one that, that we need to better understand uh, because that is the sort of thing that makes what looks very radical in isolation look a lot more normal, a lot more reasonable. I think you get into situations like we have. And, you know, I joke, you know, f the flat earth community, and I, I know I'm going to get hate tweets for this because it's obviously an absurd <laughs> fallacy, right? This idea that the earth is flat. But the flat earth com community thrives in small pockets online because people just desperately want to feel the sense of camaraderie and union and belief around something that is patently false, like obviously, obviously false and ludicrous. And so it's a fairly harmless one, uh, but it's a really good example in that if that can exist and thrive online, we have to be prepared for a world where our society can find pockets that are similarly ludicrous, but even actually more destructive and dangerous and, and buy in whole hog to them and feel normalized and feel kinship and community around them. And that's, um, that, that bears a great, a great, great cost. And I think we're seeing what that's leading to uh, offline. And, um, and we're going to have to do some work now to, to de-radicalize a lot of people. Okay. At, at the risk of making sure we both get a lot of Twitter hate on this, let's, yeah. let's put a real group to that. How about the anti-vaxxers? I mean, they are able to pick up yeah. and during a global pandemic spread all kinds of misinformation about something that could literally kill people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that, that is a perfect example. And the, I mean, that, it, and this is where, you know, I, I think there is a real, very real health cost to that, um, that you just described. Remember, we're talking about we're talking about human lives here, the, the way that things have gotten so politicized, even around, you know, empirical science uh, is, is deeply troubling. I mean, the idea, the idea that there are so many people believing that these would be potential tracking devices uh, injected in them. It's like you carry a smartphone every day. Like you should be more worried about this actual tracking device than these made up ones that could be injected in a bloodstream. Like it's, it's preposterous, but that doesn't, right. It, that alone is not enough to diffuse it now um, because it's created a kind of tribe. It's created a kind of shared belief system. And as humans, we are really well programmed to find our tribes and find these shared belief systems and believe in them deeply. And then even when we are challenged, uh, 
and often oftentimes just dig in deeper. Uh, and so I think part of this is, is understanding what got us here. And then part of this, and, and really the most important thing going forward is like, what do we do around media literacy? What do we do around education? What do we do um, to, to, to take a responsibility for where we're at and know that if we're, I mean, this is the United States of America. Like we're, we, we're, we're supposed to lead the world when it comes to scientific innovation and, and appreciation of rational thought and all this. And um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's gonna be very important for us to, to make progress on this because I, I want America to lead. Um, I think we all do. And um, you know, we have, we, we, we have the framework to do that as we have for so long in this country's history. And, um, and having science be at the heart of that and appreciation of it is, is it's, it's so true to what makes us uh, Americans. What's it like being Bro. a VC guy right now? What's the investing outlook look like? And what do you have to do, particularly when COVID's out there? What's different? I, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time here on Zoom, uh, which is, it, it's actually been like, it, it's been remarkably seamless. Um, and, and, you know, actually been a, been a fairly straightforward transition. I, I, I've been so heartened um, in a really tough year. I've been so heartened by the quality of entrepreneurs uh, that I've had pitching me, especially in the last six months. There is, I think, you know, because of all the, the, the trauma, the struggle uh, of this year in particular, I think we have a renewed faith among founders and entrepreneurs to really build something, to, to make a difference, to build something, to solve real problems. Um, that's, that's powerful. I I've never actually been more motivated in a decade of investing than, than I have been in the last really six months um, because of the caliber and quality and passion of the entrepreneurs that I'm meeting. And that's the part, look, that's the part that keeps me a relentless optimist that as painful as this year has been, um, I, I can't help but feel like the companies that are getting founded right now are going to be more purposeful, more intentional, and, and have a bigger impact uh, than, than any of the ones that I've seen. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, it makes doing this job a real blessing and a real privilege. And I, I think that is the spirit that I, I hope to see continue to thrive because uh, we got a lot of work to do. And, and COVID really exposed how either vulnerable some industries were because they, they weren't prepared for a software first type environment. And then how, you know, well prepared the software backed businesses were. And, and we took what would have been like five years of slow and steady technological uh, growth and compressed it into like five months as industries leapt ahead. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been exciting to watch. We were early investors in Instacart, which obviously has had a tremendous year. And, and that is a, it's a testament to being a technology first company in the right industry at the right time. But we're now looking at every single industry as needing to have technology at its core. Alexis, you're, you're somebody who's a, a founder of, of a social media company like this, a CEO, but you're also a VC investor and you're mm -hmm. constantly on the lookout for ways that you can find other companies that you can help along. Um, we, we have a special guest with us right now, and I'd like to bring in Elon Steinhardt, the CEO of Eclipse. Elon? Folks at home, that's a, a plant-based ice cream company that's one of Alexis's mm -hmm. initialized capital portfolio companies. And mm -hmm. first of all, Alexis, why a plant-based ice cream company? Why Eclipse? What did you see? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I've, I'm in a household where uh, uh, lactose is a problem, and, and all the alternatives were pretty bad. 
um, or they had some kind of allergen. Um, and, and basically the product was delicious. And, and I'm a true believer in uh, the shift towards more plant-based diets from an environmental standpoint, from a, just a general sustainability and health standpoint. And, uh, and I, tried, I tried some, loved it, and, uh, and really uh, <laughs> led, led from the stomach, I guess, on this one. And Elon and, uh, and Thomas have done an amazing job as founders with this. So, Elon, welcome. It's good to see you. Tell us a little bit what it's like having Alexis Ohanian as a VC funder. What, what have you learned from him? You got money from him, but what have you learned from him? What, what have you kind of found yourself figuring out as, as a young CEO yourself? Well, the first thing to answer your question, working with Alexis has been incredible. Uh, he's been a personal mentor to me, uh, really, really good guy. And I think most important, aligned with our mission, uh, at Eclipse, we are a mission-driven company. We're here to create a more sustainable, healthy, and humane food system. Uh, that's for us today, for the planet, for the animals, but also for our future generation. And Alexis really, really gets that and supports us in a way that um, we're really just very lucky. I mean, strategic advice, helping sell candidates, introducing us to operators like big grocery stores and food service operators and celebrities, getting us at amazing events. We actually serve the ice cream at the, um, at the official premiere for James Cameron's Game Changers, uh, the film about plant-based athletes um, that Alexis is also an executive producer of. So it's been really amazing just getting to fold into that network and, and getting to work towards this mission together. Um, I think on, on the question of operating Eclipse through COVID, uh, we, before COVID, were fully focused on food service. So that's restaurants, amusement parks, universities, tech campuses, all of these different places that people gather to eat food. And uh, at COVID, we, we saw a big, big shift, obviously, in, in where consumers were consuming their food. So we had to retool. Um, so just in the last few months, we've launched our direct-to-consumer channel. You can check out shop.eclipsefoods.com. Um, there's a bunch of pints there, actually a lot of collaborations with Michelin star chefs that we've put together for people to be able to order directly. Uh, and then we're also launching into the grocery channel. Uh, so a beautiful presence here in the Bay Area, really fast velocities of our pints uh, in the stores um, and expanding nationwide in the coming months. Elon, uh, good luck. It sounds like you've got um, uh, some big challenges. and It sounds like you're kind of taking them head on. It's, it's nice to meet you today. And Alexis, it's always good to see you. Take care, and we'll right, talk to you again you. soon, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Next on Squawk Pod, a restaurateur with businesses in 12 states calls on Congress for more stimulus amid fresh COVID restrictions. I feel like we're right back at the beginning. We're already seeing cities roll back from 50% to 25%. Restaurants simply cannot survive at all on those types of sales, let alone without any additional stimulus or PPP from the government. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Small business owners all across the country are still trying to get back on their feet eight months after the coronavirus pandemic shut down their livelihoods pretty much overnight. Over these past months, we've been checking in with Ohio-based restaurateur Cameron Mitchell. He's the founder and CEO of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, a brand with over 30 locations across 12 states and D.C. The road for Cameron and his staff has been a difficult one. Back in March, a week after the WHO declared a pandemic, Mitchell had to lay off almost all of his employees. By Friday, our total of 4,500 associates, as we call them, will be down to six. 17 days ago, I thought our business was in great shape and doing great. And today, it's closed. Then in May, as restaurants started reopening with increased safety protocols, outdoor seating and plexiglass barriers, we checked in with him again. I think we're going to survive, but it's going to be a while before we get out of the hospital. We expect to be open and and hopefully back to full employment by uh, the end of June or into uh, or end of July, somewhere in that neighborhood. But as negotiations for an additional federal stimulus package for small and medium businesses stalled at the end of the summer, money that could be used directly to pay his employees, Cameron Mitchell's optimism took a hit. Here he is on Squawk Box in August. Here we are today, and I feel just as nervous about the future as I did back in the beginning of March when uh, coronavirus was coming over the horizons. We're looking for a second round of PPP to help us get through the other side and, and help us sustain for the future. And now, another three months later, coronavirus cases in Mitchell's and my own home state of Ohio have surged. More than 7,000 reported just yesterday. Here's Becky Quick with Cameron Mitchell today on our TV broadcast. Chicago issuing a stay-at-home advisory for the next 30 days as COVID cases surge. It's one of many cities that are instituting new restrictions where our next guest owns and operates restaurants. In fact, his Chicago location is temporarily closed. Our guest is Cameron Mitchell. He's the founder and CEO of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, and we've been checking in with him since the beginning of this pandemic. Cameron, it's good to see you. How are you doing? Good morning, Becky. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So where do things stand right now? I know that this kind of went through rolling waves for you where you had to close all of your restaurants, where you were able to reopen some. How, how are things going right now? Well, to be honest with you, uh, we're riding the COVID wave. I feel like I did back in the very beginning of March when COVID was just coming into view for America. And we started, before we had the close down, we started to see sales uh, begin to drop. Uh, and then eventually we were shut down in mid to, to, uh, mid to late March across the country. And I feel like we're right at that exact same spot again. We have uh, over 150,000 cases uh, yesterday. Uh, our sales are, are beginning to drop. We got up to about 70, 73% of last year's sales in September and October as cases have, have grown and the states have started to slide. And 
and it's getting worse yesterday. I, I think the U.S. is reporting over 150,000 cases. So um, I feel like we're right back at the beginning almost, and I, I feel like we're going to be shut down, and, and we're, continue, we're already seeing uh, cities roll back from 50% to 25%. Uh, Beverly Hills, uh, no indoor dining. Chicago shut down. Uh, New York at 25%. And, and restaurants simply cannot survive at all on those types of sales, uh, let alone without any uh, sort of stimulus, additional stimulus or PPP from the government. Hey, Cameron, what, what you said is kind of interesting, though, that, that sometimes sales drop before the government even acts in these cases, and that's mm -hmm. people who get concerned. They see the higher case count, and, and they don't want to expose themselves. The governments have said that this time around, it's not going to be as strict as it was in times past. I don't know if they mean mm -hmm. that for restaurants or not, but even if governments don't shut things down, do you think it's just going to be a lack of consumer demand that puts you in such an extreme position, even if the governments don't say you have to close? Yeah, absolutely, Becky. So our, our governor in the state of Ohio announced on Wednesday evening uh, he's going to wait seven more days and then uh, uh, advocate uh, shutting down bars, restaurants, gyms, et cetera, because of the case counts and the hospital loads. So I feel Ohio, which is our home state, uh, more majority of our restaurants are here. Um, uh, we're going to see closures next week. But what the reality is, is the guests also and their, their attitude as sales drop, even with, with capacity or limited capacity or what, um, restaurants uh, can actually lose more money uh, than they could being shut down at 25% sales mark, you know, level. So it's it, it's uh, getting worse. I know for a fact we uh, we're starting to lose money now. Um, I just got my financial statements from last week. We are in the process as we continue to slide, uh, going to start losing more and more money and. Um, it's we need the stimulus package and we need the PPP uh, renewed at its, its, its level, which saved us. I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you today if we didn't get it last time. And, and we need uh, a renewal of that package at its level it was before. Uh, Congress has talked in some of the proposals of, of limiting it to $2 million. And, you know, we got $10 million last time. We needed uh, that $10 million again. We need PPP renewed at the same level it was. Whether you have 50 restaurants, five restaurants, one restaurant, you have 50 sick restaurants, five sick restaurants, one sick restaurant. Uh, the numbers and the losses are just exacerbated. So I'm advocating all of us in the restaurant industry, all full-service restaurants across the country, we're all in the same boat, whether you're a small independent, uh, mid-sized company like ours or a larger uh, company. We, we, we're all in, in trouble here. Cameron, I know you have, have spoken with legislators in the past. You've reached out to Congress. Mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. what have you heard back in terms of you, you have to be disappointed that nothing was done before the election. I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of how likely something will get done during a lame deck session. What have you heard back from the congressman you've reached out to? Well, uh, I've just uh, started back. In fact, I'm sending another letter out today uh, to our congresspeople. But uh, and we're fighting. I belong to a CEO group here with the restaurant industry that we work on. But it, it is uh, it's challenging to hear. We got so close last time uh, before the election, and now uh, they seem to be farther apart than ever. And I don't know what Congress needs to see and how much blood on the streets Congress needs to see and carnage in this industry. But it's happening. It's happening right now, uh, right under our, our nose right now, and it's going to get worse. And 
you know, I believe, you know, we, we might be at 250,000 cases a day or more here in America shortly, and our guests aren't going to come out to dinner, and it's, um, uh, whether we're shut down or not, uh, ostensibly we will be, and we need the help. Cameron, I hope you get you know. it. Let us know what response you hear from the representatives you reach out to. Um, thank you for being with us, and we'll check in with you again. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate it, and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. That's Squawk Pod for today and for another week. Thanks for listening, whenever you do. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern for good conversations and even movie reviews. Sorkin, I remember the first week you joined us, I asked you to rent being there and watch it, and I don't think you ever did. That, I gave you a list to, so, that you could, so that you could hang. I know. But, but it never happened. I know. I, I, we'll trade lists. I'll give you a list from, from this year. I don't, I'm not going to watch peaches. Thanks. Right. Uh, or, or fried green tomatoes or any of those that are your favorites, I don't think. Anyway, thanks. Ooh. <laughs> you know, Beaches is a good movie, by the way. Beaches is a good movie. You are the wind beneath my wings. You are. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Come Have a good on. weekend. Give it up for Bette Midler. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.